Um, so our next speaker is Dr. Dana Dunn. She's at Yale University, associate professor. She runs their ID fellowship training program and over the years has done a lot of work in STIs and uh, prevention and treatment of STIs and how to set up guidelines for that. And uh, we have her here today talking to us about STI infections or STIs and HIV disease in the top 10 highlights. So it's like David Letterman come to life from Yale University. It's amazing. <laughs> you didn't grow the big beard though. It's, I know. Okay, welcome. Thank you. Good morning. I'm very excited. Thanks for inviting me to talk about the subject I'm passionate about. I have 30 minutes to go through everything. Um, one uh, thing that I'll talk about that's not FDA approved that we'll talk about when we get to chlamydia and gonorrhea screening. Um, but hopefully you'll feel like you're updated about the, the, the huge uh, burden that we're seeing, especially for those of you who do PrEP of STIs and the intersection of STIs and your HIV population. And it's a pretty practical approach, uh, really making sure you feel like you know what to use for screening, updates about partner notification, different strategies, and where any treatment guidelines and diagnostics have changed. So the outline of it is going to be, again, highly practical, uh, like this patient is your patient up there, the little sandwich going into the Mayo Clinic. We're gonna follow your patient through uh, a, a virtual clinic to highlight these top 10 uh, topics. So hopefully you'll feel like it's highly relevant. Um, you know, despite there is some uh, encouraging news that incidence rates in the US are going down, but they had been steady for a long time and HIV and STIs together is uh, the impact of STIs is one of the reasons that HIV incidence is remaining high. Finding STIs is an important opportunity for you to talk about risk reduction and intervening for patients who have obviously are uh, possibly um, representing that they're having unprotected contact. Um, by being able to uh, promptly diagnose STIs, there's personal and public health um, ramifications of being able to treat them effectively. And as you know, even if you're uh, undetectable with your HIV, there can be detectable viral load in your genital secretions if you have STIs. So for the shared goal of us getting to zero new HIV incident infections, STIs and really being effective in finding and treating them is really part of that. So hopefully you have bought into the subject matter. So we're gonna follow your patient, Mr. GP, comes to see you in clinic, got well-controlled HIV. Um, he tells you he's had male partners in the past, but he's currently with a, a, a female partner he's been with for a while. So questions as you're sitting there um, listening to this might be, so I know I need to screen people at the beginning, but are rates ongoing high enough that I have to think about it in my subsequent clinic visits? And if so, do I need to kind of struggle through asking him uncomfortable questions about what he's doing where, or can't everybody just pee in a cup? So we'll get at those two questions first. Um, so uh, uh, on the heels of a study looking at large HIV clinics that provide primary care, they were looking at rates of STIs coming into care. So 13% of patients coming in in these four large clinics had chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis, or trichomonas. Um, but even after those were treated, at follow-up six months later, 7% had STIs. And if you eliminate trichomonas from that group, um, men as, who have sex with men were the bulk of people who are coming in with incident STIs. And so really about one in five or 20% of uh, men would come in with an incident STI. So a, a new one six months later. Mostly it was pharyngeal gonorrhea and rectal chlamydia. Um, and some risk factors for that, but really still high enough that you should think about asking your patients who are they having sex with and high enough rates to screen again. Um, and we are improving a little bit with our screening. 
Um, it's gone up from the 39%. I did see something more recently that we're up to kind of about 60% adhering to the guidelines that we should screen annually, but those rates did not go up in um, white, young men who have sex with men uh, as opposed to some other categories, so we still have room to improve. Um, we're not doing as well as we do for some things like lipid screening and hemoglobin A1C. And even when we do screen, uh, only 10% of people are getting screened extragenitally. And if I told you that most of the STIs are in places other than the genital tract, then we're really still missing a lot. So what can we do? Um, we really just, if, if you don't remember anything else, it's just to remember about screening. You know about all your initial workup for your baseline HIV infected patients. Include a lot of STI screening, syphilis screening, chlamydia and gonorrhea, which we're going to talk about. Women, you want to make sure you remember to add trichomonas, and we're going to talk about new diagnostics for that, viral hepatitis screening. But the hashtag is to remind you that you really need to screen more often in people who are at risk. So you do have to ask your patients about risk. So do they have a new partner? And what are the risks of their partner? Does their partner have other partners? Does their partner have high-risk STI activity or um, sexual activity? So you need to remember to ask that because higher risk patients need to be screened more frequently than annually. So your tip number two after remembering to screen is tip number two is UNE is urine is not enough. So I have two illustrative uh, studies to let you know about <clears throat> why we say that. The first one out of San Francisco in a clinic that mostly is STD clinic, men who have sex with men, um, and they looked at seven years retrospectively of them doing universal screening to see what proportion of STIs they would have missed if they only checked the urine or only checked the pharynx. And if they had only checked the urine, they would miss 90% of the gonorrhea plus and a lot of chlamydia. If they only checked the pharynx, they would miss um, a lot. If they only checked urine, miss most of the gonorrhea. If they only checked the pharynx, they would miss most of the chlamydia because it's mostly rectal chlamydia. And again, if they check the rectum, they'd get more of the chlamydia, but miss a lot of gonorrhea. The point being, you need to check everywhere. Uh, if you only pee in a cup, some people think it's such a sensitive test, it must all come out the pee. But it's a very focal infection, so it's only going to come out the urine if that's what you're using for your sexual activity. If you're a bottom partner for anal intercourse or using your mouth for oral genital contact, it's not going to come out the urine necessarily. So that's number one, is that urine is not enough. Number two is that it may not be enough to ask people where they're being exposed, even if you get comfortable with how to ask, which is important. This study out of Amsterdam was uh, studying men who have sex with men and heterosexual swingers, which were defined as couples, heterosexual couples that swapped partners. And they compared universal screening, regardless of symptom or site exposed, to only screening them where they had symptoms or where they said they were exposed. And the bottom line is that you would miss half of the STIs if you only checked the spots where people said they had symptoms or self-reported that they were exposed there. So there's either under-reporting or people feel like you don't get exposed if you don't have penetrative sex. Gonorrhea is so infectious, if you just even have genital-to-genital -genital kind of skin-to-skin -skin contact, uh, you can pick up the infection. So uh, asking is, is important, uh, especially asking about local symptoms, but it's not enough, at least on the basis of that study. So let's get really practical quickly about what swab. Um, for genital testing for men, urine is just as sensitive as a genital swab and certainly much more acceptable to your patients. So first voided urine for men is fine. For women though, for most assays, urine is less sensitive than genital swab. So either do a vaginal or endocervical swab. 
Um, but it, whereas it used to be certainly um, more sensitive than nothing when we would send women to get their own urine, if it wasn't time to do a pelvic, it wasn't a convenient time to do a speculum exam, now you can send your female patients into the bathroom to collect their own vaginal swabs. They're FDA approved to be just as sensitive if you get it versus they get it. So you can just put a photo that uh, you can get an illustration from the web and post it in your bathroom and not lose the sensitivity of the vaginal swab but keep the convenience of having the patient do it themselves if it's not otherwise time for an exam. So for extragenital testing, this is just what I'm going to remind you. The FDA did not give blanket approval for chlamydia and gonorrhea testing for nucleic acid amplification um, methodology in extragenital sites. So you have to remember, you have to make sure your lab has done the validation. Most large commercial labs have. Um, but as long as it has, um, for the throat swab, you just take the same swab you would use for the genitals. I always remind people to get actually a fresh swab. You don't use the same one. But <laughs> It's the same, the same packet you use, you open a fresh one, and it's just like doing a, threat, a throat swab, uh, like you would do for a strep throat. And rectal, again, you can either do it, you know, a centimeter or two into the anal canal, or the patient can do it. And again, you can download a photo to put into the, the bathroom that can show people how they can do it. This comes from um, IWantTheKit.org, where you can order your own kit online, so, but you can post these in the bathroom to help your patients help you decrease the barrier while you effectively continue your screening. So the most important tips, I probably don't have this in the reverse letterman importance because the, these are the most important and they're first, is to remember to screen and to remember who's high risk and you should screen regardless of symptoms, probably regardless of site exposed, and the patients can help you. Um, some people from the STD Prevention Training Center came up with the triple dip reminder. I'm not sure what the cherry on top is, but if the if this helps you remember what to do, then that's great. So your first uh, interactive question I want to ask you then is once you've done this for Mr. GP, he gets screened from everywhere and it comes out that he's got pharyngeal gonorrhea. <clears throat> you use a sensitive test, he has chlamydia nowhere, but he has fringe pharyngeal gonorrhea. So this question is about um, testing or, or treatment. So I just want you to look at the, the choices there and think about what is the optimal treatment for somebody with pharynx, gonorrhea, and no chlamydia anywhere. So I think I'm gonna start it now. And you got some time. And actually all of these answers would have been correct on any given year in the last decade. <clears throat> All right, so most people chose ceftriaxone and doxycycline, or azithromycin, 250 milligrams of ceftriaxone and doxycycline, and you are correct. Azithromycin, correct? Yeah. So for those of you who picked uh, ceftriaxone alone, uh, the new thing, uh, as of a year or two ago, is that the CDC has named uh, Neisseria gonorrhea one of the superbugs of concern, uh, given that there's been cephalosporin, pancephalosporin resistant strains of gonorrhea on the shores of uh, many countries, um, Japan, Northern Europe, and they're very concerned it's gonna come ashore of the continental US. So they want you to double cover uh, the gonorrhea, hoping that dual therapy is gonna hinder the development of uh, 
resistance for gonorrhea so that we won't get ceftriaxone resistant gonorrhea in the continental US. So even though you believe the chlamydia result, you're using azithro not because you don't believe the chlamydia result, you're doing it to double cover the gonorrhea. Uh, another thing that was new in the guidelines is that two grams of azithro was removed as an alternative regimen for gonorrhea, which we used to use for cephalosporin allergic patients, but they're concerned about kind of a creep in the MIC to ceftriaxone, so that's no longer recommended. I have some alternative regimens if we have time at the end for cephalosporin allergic patients. And the last thing I just want to say about gonorrhea is that if you don't have injectable cephalosporins available, you can use oral cefixime as long as you only have anal or genital infection. Pharyngeal infection, most of the oral cephalosporins is not as effective, so this guy definitely needs an injectable cephalosporin. But if you know you have anal, uh, genital or anal disease, you could use cefixime and azithro. So just be, every year you have to tune into what the latest thing is for gonorrhea. So my next tip is just to remember, once you diagnose somebody with a chlamydia gonorrhea or syphilis, and trichomonas as well for women, it's a recommendation from the CDC that you rescreen them three to four months later. This is not a test of cure. We believe our drugs work, but it's a proxy for their partners not getting treated and getting reinfected. So everybody should be rescreened. This guy needs to be rechecked in three months. So we're trying to break the cycle of reinfection. So this is not a question you have to do on the audience response system, but I just want you to ask yourself, and I'm curious how many of you know, and you can just even raise your hand, if you've used expedited partner therapy as a way to treat partners, a couple of you. So I just want to make sure you know about this entity of expedited partner therapy. <clears throat> it is a strategy of getting partners treated in a way that's uh, different from the traditional method of having your patients partners go to the health department or having them go see their own doctor. So they looked at patient-delivered partner therapy as a way that the patient would give their partner um, the med medicine for the chlamydia or the gonorrhea that they were diagnosed with so that their partner would get treated. And it was more effective in reducing the reinfection rate in the index person than traditional partner notification was. But this map here is a uh, map of the U.S. that the CDC puts together to see where it's explicitly been made legal for you and your prescriber law to write a prescription for someone who's not your patient, because it's not otherwise legal for anything, except now in the states that are green, you can write a prescription for someone who's not your, your patient if they've been exposed to chlamydia or gonorrhea. And in D.C., trichomonas as well, go you. Uh, a lot of states don't have that. So you have to go state by state. They're a little bit different. Most of them sanction treatment for uh, chlamydia, but some are a little more cautious about gonorrhea. They feel like the CDC says you need an injectable. But some states, especially for heterosexuals who have gonorrhea, they feel like the risk of pharyngeal is low enough that they say you can get suffixime. So you can go state by state, just Google EPT and your state health department, and you can get an information sheet and find out. But take advantage of it. It's more effective than traditional partner therapy. So he, Mr. GP, goes and tells his partner that she's got to come into the clinic or she could do EPT. Uh, she's HIV infected, so she decides to come to you because she gets care at, at your office. So you screen her for everything and you treat her as a contact to gonorrhea with ceftriaxone and azithro. And her trichomonas antigen comes back uh, positive. So this question is really about trichomonas treatment. Uh, what do you know about trichomonas treatment in this patient? So those are your options there, intravaginal, um, if you give the one-time stat dose of two grams, if you give it for a week, uh, or if she doesn't need to get treated as long as she's asymptomatic. So we'll start 
the voting. Some good trichomonas music. <clears throat> Okay, seven days is the majority answer, and that is the correct answer. I just wanted to use this opportunity to remind you the two-gram stat dose is effective in HIV-uninfected women, but a couple of studies had shown that it was less effective in HIV-infected women. So the CDC recommends one week, 500 milligrams twice daily. So that's the correct answer. And I had rem reminded you that she needs to get rescreened in three months because she's been diagnosed with trichomonas. And as fun as it is, I couldn't get the graphics to work for this, for the, how it looks under the wet mount. It doesn't look really like that. But as fun as it is to look under the wet mount to see those little trichomonads uh, move around, microscopy is really inferior to other, more, uh, other newer testing. So I just want to make sure you know if you've got nucleic acid amplification testing available at your site. So the, the newer ones that we could talk about, um, trichomonas antigen testing, the OSOM, is uh, less sensitive than the new, new nucleic acid amplification test, but it is quick. It's like a point of care. It's like a pregnancy test. Pretty quick and easy to use at like $9 a kit. So that might be good for some of your sites. But the PCR, the nucleic acid amplification test, actually a transcripted mediated assay methodology, is much more sensitive. So I really employ you. Same samples that you use for women right now for chlamydia and gonorrhea, you can use patient collected, you collect it, urine, genital, all those same ones can be tested for trichomonas on the same swab as you're sending chlamydia and gonorrhea. And you know, it's a, a infection that's really inflammatory in the vagina, increases HIV cervical vaginal fluid loads. And so to help us get to zero and decrease HIV transmission, you wanna be able to find trichomonas, especially asymptomatic. The new nucleic acid amplification tests are definitely a way to go. To, so please look into it and see if you have it available where you are. So he then also tells one of his male partners that he did say that he had about his gonorrhea. So his par male partner, Mr. O.S., comes to you and says, I guess I was exposed to gonorrhea, so what should you offer him? This is just to remind you somebody comes to you for STI screening or if they get diagnosed as a contact, you want to check them, um, the, do the triple dipping that we talked about. Syphilis testing is going to be important. Uh, viral hepatitis testing. He needs an HIV test. He's high risk. He's been exposed to your patient who's infected. And don't forget the vaccines. People often especially forget HPV vaccine if he's under 20, if he's 26 or under. And he's a very good candidate for PrEP, obviously. So he's HIV uninfected who's having um, uh, being exposed to your patient and others. So this is a segue to talk about the high burden of STIs in PrEP. Just a show of hand of how many of you offer PrEP in your clinical settings? Okay. And I would imagine all your hands would stay up if I say, have you been seeing STIs in that group? This is a just a quick smattering of some of the uh, larger PrEP studies that uh, specifically looked and reported chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis rates at um, in enrollment, uh, and that was quite high. And then uh, even in, then six months later, so those, all these original STIs were treated, and six months later uh, in the PROUD study, uh, half of them had another new STI, so really a lot, and we're seeing this definitely in the real world, and you're probably seeing it as well. So. 
U.S. Public Health Service and other organizations put out, you know, prep guidance, and they do uh, remind you to do. They say every six months you should check for bacterial STIs, and they remember to tell you to do extra genital testing as well. But there was a couple of um, abstracts last year's CROI that called into question was every six months enough. So this was out of Kellen Lord Clinic at, uh, in New York City, real um, kind of life prep demonstration clinic. And they were looking at uh, their percentage of people coming in with chlamydia, gonorrhea, or syphilis into the prep. And there was about 21% of people had an STI, about half were symptomatic, half were not. And then they asked about symptoms and they screened everybody everywhere every three months. And the bottom line for this is that if they would have waited for six months, um, they would have missed a lot of STIs or at the three-month part. And if they only asked about symptoms, which is the green part of the bar, um, and the red part is the ones that they found in asymptomatic people. So if they only asked about symptoms, they would have missed 77% of the STIs at three months and about 70% at nine months. San Francisco did a similar study and they additionally asked how many partners had you had during that time? How many did you have unprotected contact with? About three partners unprotected anal intercourse during that time. So a lot of the modeling around opportunities lost if you waited six months have led to a number of calls to the CDC for them to change their guidance from every six months to every three to six months to allow you to do it more frequently. So at least uh, Croy a couple of months ago, on the heels of seeing all these STIs in the prep setting, there was an interesting study by Molina and his group that extended the Ipergay study to look at doxycycline post-exposure prophylaxis as an STI prevention or, or <clears throat> uh, abortive for incubating STIs in this population. So they took 270 odd patients and they randomized them to either get doxy post-exposure prophylaxis, they gave them two 200 milligram tablets to take within 72 hours. And the other group didn't take anything. It was not placebo controlled. Um, they just didn't take anything. And then they checked them every two months for STIs and they, they ran the study for about eight or nine months. Overall, out of this 270 odd people, there were 74 STIs, 45 in the doxy-pep group. Um, I, I'm sorry. 45 was in the uh, untreated group who didn't take anything and about 25 in the doxy group. So it resulted in then a decrease by half overall of, of uh, STIs in the group that took doxycycline post-exposure prophylaxis. And you can see in the graph here uh, by STI that it's big, big impact on decreasing syphilis cases and big decrease in chlamydia cases. Not so much in gonorrhea, it's a little less, doxy is a little less effective for gonorrhea. Um, so, as a proof of concept study to decrease the rates of, eight, of STIs by half was pretty significant. This is not ready for prime time, a lot of concerns about antibiotic use, um, antibiotic stewardship, what this is all going to mean, but I think it was really interesting to look at what we can do for the burgeoning burden of STIs that we're seeing in this group. So he comes in, Mr. OS then, he gets treated as a contact to uh, gonorrhea and you do all your baseline work and you start him on um, PrEP with tenofovir imtricitabine. So he comes back three months later and you believe some of those studies that show that you should screen him at three months, screen him for everything. And he says to you while he's in the bathroom doing his self-collected rectal swab, he can barely read the directions because he's got blurriness in his left eye. So you call, you get your results back two days later and he's got a positive syphilis screening antibody, high RPR of one to 256, so you call him back up to ask him about signs and symptoms of syphilis and he admits to a rash. 
uh, two weeks ago that had subsequently went away. And by the way, his rectal chlamydia test is also positive. So this gets us into syphilis, which as you, I know this audience knows is still upon us. Um, the chart over on the left is just CDC surveillance that comes out every year. And if it went back to 2000 for rates of syphilis, that's when we saw male and female rates start to diverge and the MSM rates continue to go up. Rates overall of syphilis in the last year went up 20%. That's really high for, for syphilis to go up at 20% in one year. And we're starting to see increases in women and increases in congenital cases as well. Um, the graph on the right is just to remind you for patients with primary and secondary syphilis that there's um, quite a few who are HIV co-infected. So there's a core probably group of transmitters of MSMs who are HIV infected with syphilis. And so we continue to see rates climb. So this tip really has to do with you need to be, if you're, if you're working in this space, really pretty sophisticated and facile with the subtler symptoms of neurosyphilis. A lot of people think neurosyphilis is a late complication of syphilis. And while there are forms of neurosyphilis that come later, like TABs and parenchymatous disease, the central nervous system gets infected by the treponeme very early on, before your primary lesion even, and, and on. So this um, graphic across the top just reminds you about kind of the timeline of syphilis and really that neurosyphilis can happen at any time. So the specific entity that we're seeing a lot for neurosyphilis right now is something called symptomatic early neurosyphilis. So it's the, the types of neurosyphilis that we see earlier on in the disease, like around the time you have secondary. And about half that is ocular. So uh, we have like six cases of ocular syphilis in the last six months up at Yale, <clears throat> about half of whom had HIV co-infection. So half is ocular, it's usually uveitis, can be chorioretinitis. Then also remember about otic disease. Somebody comes in with su sudden sensorineural hearing loss, sudden ringing in their ears, imbalance, um, also cranial nerve deficits, uh, aseptic meningitis, stuttering stroke symptoms. So it's really important to know about these symptoms so you can ask. Somebody comes in with a new uh, syphilis diagnosis, you did screening, they come back with a new test, they seem to be asymptomatic. You really need to be facile to drill down on these questions. So this is from um, Seattle's public STD clinic. So they've had a questionnaire that really drills down at otic symptoms and ocular symptoms that patients can ask themselves or you as providers can remember to ask because if they have any of these symptoms, they have symptoms of neurosyphilis and they need a referral and they need an LP. But so that gets us to who and whom to, you should do an LP. For a while, we thought we should do it on all HIV-infected people if they have syphilis. That's not the recommendation. It's not the recommendation to do it based on CD4 or RPR titer. Really, it drills down to two with the possible third. You should do an LP on pa any patient, HIV-infected or not, if they have signs or symptoms of neurosyphilis. So that's why it's so important for you not to just see somebody who says they have no problem and presumes they have latent disease. You have to drill down and ask them about these subtler symptoms. Anybody who has tertiary syphilis, which you don't, we don't see a lot of, but cardiovascular or gummas, they should get an LP. And more controversially, but most experts would agree, if you have a patient who doesn't seem to be serologically responding to their syphilis treatment, they should also get an LP, as defined there. And if they have signs or symptoms of neurosyphilis and the VDRL in their spinal fluid's positive, that's diagnostic of neurosyphilis. If they have signs or symptoms, um, but their CSF VDRL is negative, it is insensitive, uh, then we would uh, say that they might have it if they have an abnormal pleocytosis or an elevated protein. So remember to really think about 
If you have somebody who has a new syphilis diagnosis to ask them specific questions, and conversely, if they come in with neurologic complaints, to test them for syphilis. Um, so the key points about this guy then, you recognize that this is neurosyphilis symptom. So he, he saw the ophthalmologist, he had posterior uveitis, got an LP and started on IV penicillin. So they need to be followed every three months uh, for the first year to make sure their RPR or non-treponemal titers are going down, and then annually until their titer either becomes non-reactive or stays at a very low level, uh, low and st steady level. But it's important for you to know that the CDC recommended that you report any ocular syphilis within 24 hours to the health department. They're wondering if this is a new outbreak, if there's a new oculotropic strain of syphilis that's uh, being seen. So you should report it, and ideally, if you can contribute in a study, the CDC and then sends to um, Seattle would like pre-antibiotic spinal fluid or blood or vitreous fluid, because they're trying to type it and see if there's a certain strain that's causing most of the ocular syphilis. So the last one is some providers uh, had been a little confused on how to deal with rectal chlamydia. They know that there's a uh, chlamydia trachomatis cerevar lymphogranuloma venerium, which can cause proctitis. And when you have chlamydia from LGV that causes proctitis, you need three weeks of treatment. So some people think are concerned that if you get rectal chlamydia, you should type it and see if it's LGV or not. So this penultimate tip is to remind you that you're just going to treat based on symptoms. So if somebody has a rectal chlamydia test, it's positive, and they have no symptoms at all, you can use the same treatment we use for uncomplicated urogenital disease with chlamydia, um, uh, azithro, or doxycycline. But if they have symptoms, so you need to remember to ask if they have a positive test, do you have tenesmus, do you have pus, do you have uh, blood, do you have pain, uh, do you have intermittent diarrhea with pain, that that would be consistent with a clinical proctitis, and you should presume they have LGV strain of chlamydia and treat them for 21 days of doxy. Uh, it, they're not offering any more right now to do a strain type on your swab. If you wanted to send it to the CDC, they're not recommending it. So you ask you based on signs and symptoms. If they're symptomatic, you should presume it's LGV. I will say parenthetically that there is some concern that even for the asymptomatic chlamydia, uh, that azithro has not seemed to work as well as doxy. This has been in small studies. We need a large randomized clinical trial to know, but this for this first group I'm talking about, there is some little signal that doxy may be better. Uh, so stay tuned. If you think you'd have a patient that would take seven days of doxycycline, that might be better. So your <clears throat> last tip is that there's much more that I would have loved to say, uh, but couldn't say in a half an hour. And the SED treatment guidelines, if you, use, if you have like a QRS scanner, please upload it to your phone right now. Um, it's got all the treatment guidelines, diagnosis, management, uh, not lots more than just treatment. So for everything else, there's the app. And um, there's also another resource of a national uh, network of consulting. If you have a STI question, it's a conundrum, there's now this consultant uh, group through the Prevention Training Centers that you can uh, put in online and they get back to you within a couple of days. So these are not take-home points, hopefully they're take-to-work points. You got to test, you got to remember to know how active, your, if your patients are high risk, uh, to remember to screen them regardless of symptoms, regardless of signs, double cover for gonorrhea. We want to make sure we're making impacts on our ability to get partners um, treated and to break the cycle of reinfection by employing other strategies, rescreening, expedited partner therapy, um, trichomonas. We are there's 
it's probably the most prevalent STI that's non-viral in the U.S. and possibly the world. And our diagnostics have really been suboptimal up till now. So please start to use them. Um, and you've got to really get familiar and fluent with syphilis management if you're working in this field. Test maybe more often in your PrEP patients. Know what to ask your patients, both HIV infected as well as your PrEP patients, about signs and symptoms. And for everything else, uh, there's an app. So I'll stop there. Well, uh, a very practical talk, and uh, uh, I'm sure that'll elicit some questions. And one of the issues about syphilis is because I guess it it uh, can't be grown uh, in vitro. Uh, there hasn't been a lot of progress on understanding the organism for the last 50 years or so. But now what you're suggesting is that there are different strains that have led to the ocular and oto uh, syphilis. This isn't just an, uh, an issue of recognition. And if this, in fact, is a different strain, is, are there cluster effects where the ocular cases are linked? So they're, they're, not, they're positing that there could be a strain, and Sheila Lukart, who does a lot of this molecular work in Seattle, wants to look at that, and um, I'm not gonna remember all the, 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 some of the types that they ended up um, uh, looking at to see if there's clusters. I had seen a preliminary report where they've gotten some samples that everybody has sent in that so far look like it, there wasn't clusters, that it's probably mostly that we're seeing more syphilis in general. Um, but they would like to get more samples to see if they can get a better signal on this. So we're not seeing at this point that it seems to be a certain strain. All right, we'll get to your question in one minute. Let me just add, the, with syphilis, one of the talks we're not having this year is about elimination of HIV. We're talking about reservoirs. Uh, Suzanne Nagy is going to talk about elimination of hepatitis C. But with syphilis, we have a disease that is easy to recognize and easy to treat. So why have you people in STIs been unsuccessful in eliminating this? Well, it's probably a lot of people in here know that we were really close in 2000, 2001. There was the eliminate syphilis effort that was, they tried to get money from Congress and they said, rates are so low, we don't need to apportion money uh, for that. And then the rates went way up. Um, in the last big epidemic in the late 80s, which was mostly heterosexual, inner city, sex for drug, crack cocaine epidemic, the average number of patient or partners that the index patient would have would be one to 1.2, and 95% of the time the patient would know that partner, and so the partner notification to really shore up that epidemic uh, quickly came under wraps. Um, in Connecticut, when I've worked at the DIS, and they did some numbers on it uh, in the current MSM epidemic, the average number of partners that would be solicited when the DIS would talk with them was about eight and only 8% of the time are we finding the partner. So 92% of people who are being exposed to infectious syphilis, we cannot get to their partners. So then that real cornerstone of really making an impact on an epidemic, we're losing out. So they're trying to really modernize partner notification and be able to put ads, kind of banner ads on certain dating websites. Um, you've probably read that Grindr, they've, they've done a study that Grindr uses associated with STIs. Um, there's a cute little thing you can tell your patients about called um, inspot.org. I don't know if anybody's used that before, but it's a website you can go to and you can send, if you know your partner's email, you can send them a little, uh, little STD card. And it's like literally you pick your STD, you can pick pubic lice or gonorrhea or whatever you want to pick. And it's like roses are red, violets are blue, 
I have gonorrhea and so do you. And it, it links you, depending on your town, it links you to uh, where the STI treatment centers are, where you can go get treatment. So it's really great. So we're trying to keep up with it, but it's been a lot of um, difficulty in anonymous partners. And, and why are Washington and Baltimore epicenters nationally? What is it about our cities that's different from New Haven? Because New Haven certainly has its issues. No, New Haven, we, we have high rates of, uh, per population, we're, wet, we're right up there with Baltimore for, for syphilis and gonorrhea. All right, despite the fact, again, that you have a, uh, a very progressive public health department and a university that's interested in this. Correct. All right. No comment. Next. So thank you very much for the presentation. So in a lot of resource-limited settings, um, particularly where access to diagnostics aren't as available as they are here, they do periodic treatment in high-risk groups where they'll just treat them maybe once a year or twice a year for STIs. I'm wondering if you think that that approach would be cost-effective for individuals who are on PrEP, for example, or maybe other high-risk groups, um, given that we do have so much access to uh, screening for these uh, different infections. Would it be more cost-effective just to treat everybody periodically? So the question's about just presumptive periodic treatment in PrEP patients specifically? PrEP or other high-risk populations. Um, you know, I think that uh, kind of it's, it's gonna be uh, doing, doing the numbers about that. That's a, that's a lot of antibiotic use. Um, the, 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 the rates um, in, in PrEP patients are certainly getting high enough to think about doing that, but the frequency with which, I mean, it may be in certain populations, because what I thought you were gonna go to, and I'm gonna, like, I'm gonna preempt the answer to your question to say one thing about cost savings that might help to decrease the cost for screening that could uh, affect the calculus of the question you're asking. Because some people have asked about uh, if uh, pooling the swab that you do from the throat and maybe the uh, genital swab and the rectal swab if you do a separate swab for each of those, but then put them all in the same um, testing receptacle, so you're just testing once. Uh, maybe you don't really care where their chlamydia is, you're gonna treat them um, as a cost-saving uh, measure. And there was some uh, preliminary things that I saw that it looked like you do lose some sensitivity uh, for gonorrhea with that, so there could be some inhibiting substances that you're really accumulating by getting those, all those body sites together in one. Um, but that, but overall, it certainly is a cost saving. So one thing to think about is, because there still would be like half the people or more don't have STIs that would be getting exposed to antibiotics. So if you could do a little cost saving by selective screening, um, maybe depending on your, your budget or pooling, that, that maybe would fit into the cost. So I, I don't know, I, I would have to do a big, I haven't seen any big analysis about looking at that in the U.S. in the, the PrEP population or high-risk populations. They've done it historically in um, sex workers, certainly, and in, in, in parts in Africa, there was campaigns to tr do periodic mass treatment. In the military, certainly, decades ago, they would do a lot of mass treatment. There's a lot of stewardship uh, questions that come into play. So it's, I think it's worthwhile thinking about. All right, uh, several people have asked who pays for uh, identified partner uh, therapy? So with, 
if, if, the, if the patient has insurance, uh, that then the, pres the pharmacy would accept the prescription that's written for your patient or the patient's partner, even though it's not your patient. If the patient doesn't have insurance, um, you, uh, depending on the setting you're, that you're in, sometimes you're able, in our clinical setting, we have extra doses of medication uh, that we're able to give that the state provides. Um, otherwise, they're probably going to have to then go to the health department and not really be able to take advantage of a prescription if they don't have coverage to prescription coverage that's going to cover it. So in other words, let's, say you, let's say you had four identified partners, your insurance would pay for your four partners? So it's not the patient's insurance that, would, that pays for it. Oh, you're saying the partners. So the, it, it's I'm, still the prescription can say EPT on it, mm -hmm. or if the patient tells you the partner's name, you can put the partner's name on it, but it's the, the, the partner themselves has to take it oh, and put it on their uh, prescription drug coverage plan because it's it would be not really uh, kosher for for the person for the patient themselves to get multiple doses in their own name. Uh, another question that's come up is: if you have ocular oto syphilis, do you need to do an LP? That question definitely comes up. It is the recommendation to do an LP. You may be saying, but I'm going to treat them for neurosyphilis anyway. The recommendation is to do the LP because if it's highly, highly positive, meaning it looks pretty active, there's a lot of cells, so the protein's elevated or the CSF-VDRL is positive, if any of those are the case, the recommendation is to repeat it six months later to make sure those parameters correct. So that's why we do advocate that you're going to do it. It won't change your immediate management, but it would tell if you need to repeat the LP six months later. Mm -hmm. uh, do you want to say anything about the shortage of uh, uh, benzene penicillin? Do you, are you having a shortage? No, we're having a shortage. There's always a, a shortage. Um, so the, syphilis has priority uh, for um, as as for syphilis um, for benzathine penicillin use uh, for people who are HIV uh, uninfected and uh, you you feel are going to be likely to take their their medication. You can use alternatives for primary and secondary syphilis. You can use 14 days of doxycycline. For late latent, you can use 28 days of doxycycline, but it's recommended to not use any of those, obviously, if the woman is pregnant, and with caution if they're HIV infected. So most hospitals and clinics are prioritizing uh, HIV um, syphilis patients could, could have access to the penicillin. And I, I would mention that the cephalosporin allergic uh, gonorrhea regimens are uh, in the back in your syllabus but it basically is a dose of uh, um, gentamicin IM, like 240 milligrams once, and uh, gemafloxacin once. So it's a advanced cephalosporin, um, a quinolone, and an aminoglycoside injectable if you're allergic to cephalosporins. Yeah. And if uh, the CDC is concerned about uh, 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 beta-lactam-resistant gonorrhea, why not increase the dose of ceftriaxone? So they did do that a couple of years ago. It used to be 125 milligrams, and the, the creep was going up, so it went up to 250 so they can stay ahead of it, and they might need to do that again. Okay. Then there's some questions about things that were on the slides. You know, the slides uh, are on your website. If there's something you couldn't read up here, or uh, Dan, I'm sure, would be happy to answer your questions uh, after this. Uh, any other pressing questions somebody wants to come up and ask? We have a couple of demographic uh, slides uh, to do, but Dan, thanks very much for a, a great talk. And uh, again, she'll be here to uh, answer any questions.